1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. If you hear a little bit of a lilt in my voice, that's cuz James Blend is back. Welcome back James Blend. He's engineering and producing today's program. I hope you had a, a good few days off after your uh, Fish Fest weekend. So glad to have you back. Uh, today on the program, we're going to talk with um, John Malcolm. He's the vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Democrats are blaming the Mueller um, investigation for stalling meetings with uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Republicans uh, are full steam ahead. We're going to talk about this effort, the impact it's likely to have, and what the Constitution may or may not have to say about. Uh, All of this. Also, we're going to share conversations I had with Jonathan Merritt, author of Learning to Speak God from Scratch and Why Sacred Words are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. And John Zmirak, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration and American First Manifesto. Both of those conversations, one in the first, the second in the second hour of today's program. Well, westerly winds are aloft, we're told, and now they're pushing the smoke back over us. So we've experienced a bit of that, although as I turn to my left, look out the big plate glass window. The skies are blue. The clouds are puffy. It actually looks pretty good right about now. Um, The Oregon DEQ extended the air quality advisory to 4 p.m. today for the uh, Portland metro area, north coast and Willamette Valley. And looking outside, that's just about right. The advisory for central and eastern Oregon, that's been extended to Friday at noon. Both advisories are originally scheduled to expire at noon today but had to be extended a bit. The air quality index as of 11 a.m. today was 163. Now that threshold is 150 for unhealthy for everyone. So 163 was pretty high, numbers that placed the region well into the unhealthy category. Ratings higher than 100 are considered unhealthy for sensitive groups and a reading higher than 150 considered unhealthy for all of us. The AQI measures how many particles are in the air. I've noticed... Um my voice is a bit scratchier. My eyes have been a little bit irritated. Well, shifting winds from the west are supposed to start the process of clearing smoke from the Portland metro area. And as I look out, that seems to be the case. East and northwest winds, or rather northeast winds over the last few days, pushed a lot of wildfire smoke offshore. Westerly winds uh, are now pushing the smoke back over us. So it'll take until the, well, about now to get to rid the sky of our smoky haze. In addition to smoke clearing, temperatures are going to drop and have uh, into the 70s for most of next week. Imagine that a whole week of temperatures in the 70s. It's as if we live in, oh, I don't know, Oregon? Um, there are no more 90-degree days in the forecast for at least a week. So, again, new normal, old normal. Uh, haze from wildfires burning to the north returned to Portland on Sunday. It was brought to poor air quality with it. Portland Air Quality's index has been above unhealthy since Sunday morning, so it's been several days. I was talking to um, my coworker Andy West and he was pointing out that the the jet stream has sent smoke from our area It's carried it all the way to Denver and also Dallas-Fort Worth. So this is being carried aloft in other places one wouldn't expect uh, either. The National Weather Service here in Portland advises everyone to avoid outdoor activities when the air quality is above 150 and sensitive group people uh, with heart or lung disease, older adults and children, to avoid outdoor activities when the AQI is higher than 100. We should all be pretty safe now and moving forward for the next several days. People should take the precautions to stay safe during air quality alerts, uh, according to the National Weather Service. So good news. Things are looking better for us for the next several days. And that's also good for the Hood to Coast. Runners who have been fearful of blistering temperatures for this year's relay, they can relax as the forecast calls for highs over the weekend, barely breaking 70 degrees, which is just about Uh, Perfect running weather with chance of sprinkles. I had just a little bit of a mist on my windshield this morning, and I have to admit, I was a little bit excited at the prospect of water falling from the sky. Well, there's a chance of sprinkles over the next several days as well. And I think on Sunday, a possibility of real rain. The last time I looked, it was 40 percent chance that may have adjusted. But. I have to, again, say that it was a bit exciting to even consider. The first wave of runners will start at 5 a.m. on Friday at Timberline Lodge, where the temperature will be in the low 40s. Um, The high Saturday afternoon in Seaside will hit in the mid-60s. An air advisory that lingered for days here in Portland was expected to be lifted and has been, so the smoky, hazy condition should also be gone, and that's great news for runners. This year, um, they're going to arrive from all 50 states, referring to the runners, and 43 countries for the Hood to Coast. There are 19,000 runners and walkers registered. There are 40,000 on the wait list. So if you've been thinking, oh, someday I'd like to do the Hood to Coast... 40000 on the wait list. The 2017 relay raised $740,000 for Providence Cancer Institute. Kudos uh, to the race for that. Um, And again, the weather's going to cooperate, so that's good news for everyone who's participating. Fears of what uh, what it might mean uh, have been allayed. Well, some bad news. The missing Oregon woman, uh, Megan Cordy, has been found dead, according to her family, the 27-year-old, who was reported missing on the 18th of this month, has been found and she is deceased, her family said in a statement today. The Yamhill County Sheriff's Office said a body who they believe to be Megan Cordy was found by joggers down an embankment just north of Dayton at the on-ramp that leads to the Wallace Road to Highway 18 and Foster Road. The Sheriff's Office notified the family of the discovery. The family is asking for privacy at this time and offered the following statement. It is with very heavy hearts that we are sharing our beloved daughter, Megan, has been found to by the Yamhill County Sheriff's Office, the pain our family is experiencing is unimaginable, and we ask for privacy as we process this information and continue to grieve as a family. Well, we certainly want to respect their privacy, but it's also an invitation to pray for them as they grieve uh, the loss of this young woman. Again, 27-year-old Megan Cordy. She was last seen around 10:30 p.m. on Saturday after attending a wedding in the Grand Island community, about eight miles south of Dayton. She. Um, exited a car she had been riding in with her mother after an argument. She went away barefoot and without her cell phone, according to police. Detectives and investigators from the Yamhill County Major Crimes Response Team are on the scene and working the investigation, and hopefully there will be uh, more information uh, coming. More than 100 people searched the Grand Island area on Monday and Tuesday but found no trace of, uh, of her dogs, helicopters, planes, infrared technology, drones, Marine Patrol assisted in the search. On Wednesday, the sheriff's office said it had suspended the search but would continue the investigation into her disappearance. And today, we've learned um, that she has been found and sadly is deceased. Well, on this day in history, in 1305, Scottish leader and national hero William Wallace was executed in London. And on this day in 1833, Britain abolished slavery in the colonies. 700,000 slaves were freed personally gratifying. And in 1914, on this day, Japan declared war on Germany, but that was World War I. You may not have uh, known that date. And in 1919, Gasoline Alley, the cartoon strip premiered on the, Colum- the uh, Chicago Tribune, rather. In 1963, on this day, the Beatles released, She Loves You. You can fill in the rest. And in 1966, on this day, Lunar Orbiter One takes the first photograph of Earth from the moon. And the rest, as they say, is hist- Are you mouthing the words in there? She loves you. Yeah. Oh, well, it worked. 15 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: <laughs> Fast forward to 2018. She doesn't love you anymore. Sorry. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, federal prosecutors in New York granted immunity to publisher David Pecker in exchange for information in the investigation into hush money payments by the Trump attorney Michael Cohen. Now, sources confirmed. By the way, um, Mr. Pecker is the uh, publisher of the um, now I've just forgotten the name of it, The Enquirer. The National Inquiry. Sources confirmed that uh, prosecutors struck the immunity deal with uh, Pecker, the CEO of American Media Inc., which publishes the National Enquirer. Her uh, or rather his company alleged uh, allegedly was involved in the hush money deals involving payments to, well, you know, who and who. Uh, to shut down allegations of impropriety. Well, the immunity agreement allows uh, Pecker to speak on what involvement Cohen and Trump might have had in these payments. Well, Cohen on Tuesday pled guilty to eight counts, including campaign finance violations connected with those payments. And there's still some question as to whether or not there is an actual crime in what took place. I won't go into it today. I went into it a little bit yesterday. But uh, I think one way to describe it is a mess. And the uh, soap opera continues Special counsel Robert Mueller's I hate saying the name because I hear mueller me, uh, the German would be Mueller. I I don't really know. So I'm going to call him Mueller for the day. Special counsel Robert Mueller's team was uh, uh, one holdout juror away from winning a conviction against Paul Manafort on all 18 counts of bank and tax fraud. That's according to one juror who agreed to be named Paula Duncan in an exclusive interview on Wednesday. It was one person who kept the verdict from being guilty on all 18 counts, the uh, 52-year-old said. She added that Mueller's uh, team of prosecutors often seemed bored, apparently catnapping during parts of the trial. Well, the identities of the jurors has been closely held, kept under a seal by Judge T.S. Ellis III. You don't know how difficult it is to say Judge T.S. Ellis when you want to say T.S. Elliot, but... So far, I haven't made that mistake. Anyway, at Tuesday's uh, conclusion of the high-profile trial. But Duncan, the jurist, uh, gave a behind-the-scenes account on Fox News on Wednesday after the jury returned a guilty verdict against the former Trump campaign chairman on eight financial crime counts. And deadlocked on 10. She described herself as an avid supporter of President Trump, but said that she was moved by four full boxes of exhibits provided by Mueller's team, uh, though she was skeptical about prosecutors' motives in the financial crimes case. Certainly, she said Mr. Manafort got caught breaking the law, but he wouldn't have gotten caught uh, if it weren't. um, If they weren't after President Trump, she said in the special counsel's case, which she separately described as a witch hunt to try to find Russian collusion, borrowing a phrase the president used in tweets more than 100 times. Something they um, went through, something rather that went through my mind is this should have been a tax audit uh, sympathizing with the foundation of the Manafort defense team's argument. But she did vote in favor of um, guilty plea on all counts with one holdout, meaning that only eight went forward and a uh, mistrial on the other 10. Attorney General Jeff Sessions fired back today at President Trump for saying he never took control of the Justice Department, putting out a sharp statement vowing the agency wouldn't be improperly influenced by politics. The president made the comments in a wide-ranging interview. Uh, The president, on the heels of the first guilty verdict from the trial connected to Special Counsel Robert Mueller's uh, probe, continued to fume over Sessions' recusal from the Russian investigation, saying he never took control of the Justice Department, and it's a sort of um, incredible thing. But Sessions... Encountered in a written statement saying, and I quote, I took control of the Department of Justice the day I was sworn in, which is why we have had unprecedented success at effectuating the President's agenda, one that protects the safety and security rights of the American people, reduces violent crime, enforces our immigration laws, promotes economic growth, and advances religious liberty. And once again, there's speculation as to whether or not the President will fire his Attorney General. Well, a guilty verdict in Northern Virginia didn't implicate President uh, Donald Trump, while a guilty plea in Manhattan did implicate the president, but it could be difficult to prove he did anything wrong. That's according to legal experts. And of course, you can go to the next block over and legal experts will have a different opinion. But um, still, they agree that two events in court this week could mean trouble for the president, although they differ on how much trouble and what kind. A jury in Alexandria, Virginia found the Trump uh, campaign chairman, former campaign uh, chairman Paul Manafort, guilty on eight counts. As you know, the more direct problem, however, is that former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, implicated him uh, in what prosecutors called a campaign finance violation. Now, coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk about whether or not um, the president is a un, an unindicted co-conspirator and whether or not an actual crime can be uh, identified. But um, the question is, what does this mean for the Mueller probe? Well, both cases could mean a lot of special counsel. Bob uh, Mueller's investigation uh, officially centered on Russian interference in the 2016 election uh, it would continue to broad. Mueller secured his uh, first jury verdict in the Manafort conviction and then uh, another in the attorney's um, case. Thus far, the special counsel has brought indictments against more than two dozen Russian operatives, secured guilty pleas on charges mostly unrelated to Russian interference, as were the two cases I've mentioned, from former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, Manafort Associate Rick Gates, and low-level Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York brought charges against Cohen, not Mueller's uh, team. However, Cohen's attorney, Lanny Davis, who is a Democrat operative and insider, longtime counsel to Bill and Hillary Clinton said Tuesday that his client has information that Mueller's investigation would be interested in. A former prosecutor believes this could be significant. The next step is if they uh, haven't already, the Southern District of New York will turn over everything to the Mueller team. Um, and we'll see what uh, what happens. Manafort and Cohen are completely unrelated to the mission of investigating collusion with Russia, but it's damaging in the court of public opinion and signals the Department of Justice is moving aggressively against the president. It's not likely Manafort would have let his case go to trial if he had anything to offer prosecutors on Trump. Uh, So the Cohen case is the one to watch. And does this increase prospects of impeachment? Well, Mueller's investigation is yet to allege much less prove collusion between the Trump campaign and Russians in the campaign cycle of 2016. But the allegation that Trump worked with one of his lawyers to violate a federal campaign finance law, which again is a big question mark, is the first quantifiable accusation of a crime. Mueller's final report draft will likely find that the president was implicated in a federal crime if the report finds any crime at all. Uh, what would Democrats do with that? A number are already running on a platform of impeachment. Of course, that predates this most recent disclosure. So whether or not um, a crime has been committed and is identified is almost irrelevant. What happens in the midterm elections will determine Uh, what happens on that front. And are Cohen's charges provable? In his uh, guilty plea on Tuesday, which, by the way, will not uh, require uh, being proved in a court of law because of uh, uh, his plea. Anyway, in the guilty plea on Tuesday, a U.S. District Court of Southern uh, District of New York, he stated that then-candidate Trump told him to coordinate payments to two women during the 2016 presidential rapes to keep them from publicizing past relationships with uh, the soon to be president, the president has denied having an inappropriate relationship with either woman. But that's beside the point. At this point, days before the election, Cohen paid one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to one. Uh, she has said she had a well, one night meeting with the president. Uh, the other um, uh, was paid one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars from American Media Inc. And that, of course, is the guy who was just recently uh, given immunity to um Uh, to testify. Anyway, she was paid through that corporation, the parent company of the tabloid national Enquirer. David Pecker, a friend of Trump is chairman and CEO of that organization. So uh, that will be a part of this ongoing unraveling of, um, of the knot. And does Cohen have uh, more to offer? Well, his guilty plea didn't include a cooperation agreement, which would require him to cooperate, but it doesn't preclude him from choosing to do so. Um, it's officially not a cooperation agreement. It's an agreement between the prosecution and the defendant to negotiate specific charges, especially charges leveled at the president that agrees with the prosecution's theory to limit prison time. Now, this is a, a questionable uh, tactic that is often used by prosecutors, and in, uh, in that you dangle a significant amount of, uh, of prison time in front of someone who may or may not be willing to tell the truth, but is willing to say whatever will reduce the amount of time spent In prison. So the credibility of the individual um, can be questioned under those circumstances. And certainly in the case of Mr. Cohen, whose credibility was already rather shaky, it does raise some interesting questions. But those are some of uh, the questions that are relevant to what's happened thus far far. We'll keep uh, following the story. Up next, we're going to share a conversation I had with Jonathan Merritt, learning to speak God from scratch, why sacred words are vanishing and how we can revive them. That's coming up next. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with John Malcolm. The Democrats are uh, blaming the Mueller investigation for stalling uh, meetings with uh, Judge Kavanaugh. But the Republicans, they're they're still full steam ahead, September 4th being the first uh, hearing to be held. We'll tell you more about that when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you along with us. James Blind is producing and engineering today's program. Uh, by the way, later this hour, we'll talk with John Smirak. He is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Immigration, and America First Manifesto. He'll be joining us in our next segment. Well, in light of yesterday's conviction of former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and lawyer Michael Cohen's guilty plea, Democrats are seizing the day. A number of Democratic senators canceled their meetings with Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, By the way, many of them hadn't intended to meet with him at all. Uh, Anyway, they cited the president's ties to Manafort and Cohen as the reason. Then Senate Majority Leader, or rather Senate Minority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer, he took things a step further and declared Kavanaugh's nomination should be halted indefinitely. And um, we know that Democrats have been looking for an excuse to halt the hearings, and uh, now they have— A pretext to do just that. Republicans aren't taking the bait. Senator Grassley has no plans to delay Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings, which start on Tuesday, September the 4th. Well, here to talk about all of this is John Malcolm. He's vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: My pleasure. Good to be with you, Georgie.
2: Well, we know that the uh, hearing for um, hearings for um, Judge Kavanaugh are set to begin on Tuesday, September the 4th. But now we're hearing, a, a really at the end of a long string of excuses not to move forward, that because of events of the last couple of days, we really should suspend this whole thing. And as I mentioned, uh, that's what um, the uh, Senate Minority Leader is su- suggesting ought to be done. Your thoughts initially? <laughs>
3: well, I have several Uh, One of them is that the Democrats have been trying to uh, put this off as as long as they can, uh, even though they had announced as soon as Brett Kavanaugh's name was uh, placed into nomination that they had no intention whatsoever of voting for him. Uh, They have, for instance, been insisting that uh, they have to have a complete production of every scrap of paper that ever crossed his desk when he was the staff assistant to the president before they have uh, any kind of hearing. And now there is this. I don't know what the cause for delay would be other than, you know, the president, they they don't like him and they somehow think he's facing some political or or legal jeopardy and that therefore he is somehow, because there's this microscope on him, he's somehow disqualified from nominating somebody to the Supreme Court. I do not recall, although I suppose I might have missed it, any Democrats saying the same thing. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer were nominated and then confirmed, even though at the time there was a little investigation called the Whitewater investigation that was going on against President Clinton, in which he was clearly under a cloud of suspicion, Uh, nobody seemed to have... Uh, any qualms whatsoever about proceeding with the confirmation hearings for Ginsburg and Breyer and ultimately confirming them to the Supreme Court.
2: Well, a couple of things come to mind. The first thing is, is this really a reflection of their unwillingness up to this point to um, acknowledge the legitimacy of the Trump presidency? Uh, They still have not been able to come to grips with the outcome of the election. It was supposed to have turned out – A different way, or is this simply about Merritt Garland, who was deprived of a hearing during the previous administration uh, right before a presidential election?
3: I I think it's about that and everything else uh, that you can throw in. Uh, but the kitchen sink in terms of uh, trying to deprive this president of uh, another Supreme Court uh, appointment. They don't like the judges that he has been uh, appointing. They think that perhaps they have a chance of retaking the Senate uh, in the midterm elections, although it's unlikely. That would grind all of these nominations to uh, a halt. They realize that the margins for the Republicans at the moment are as slim as they could get. I mean, with John McCain effectively not coming back to Washington, the margin is 50 to 49, and And they are somehow thinking that if they delay, that something will come up uh, that will flip one of these Republicans or the Senate will flip and they will be able to defeat this nominee. And so in the meantime, they are throwing whatever mud they can conceivably dig up onto a wall and hoping, praying, really, that something sticks.
2: Well, uh, there's a new Fox News poll, and they indicate that voters are increasingly divided over the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Now, this isn't related to recent disclosures, but his nomination at all. According to the poll, 45% would confirm Kavanaugh, 46% oppose him, uh, again, according to this latest poll. Last month, voters supported him by 38 to 32% uh, margin, respectively, and many voters at the time 30 um, percent had no opinion of Kavanaugh's, uh nomination. Is this uh, evidence that the Democrats are successfully undermining the, the, uh, the legitimacy of his nomination? Or, or how would you interpret that poll, which is one snapshot at one moment um, and may not tell us more than that?
3: Well, one, I, I think that the, the public as a general matter... Uh, other than you know, sophisticated listeners of your program have very little idea what the Supreme Court uh, does. And indeed, there's a significant minority of people who actually think that Judge Judy is on uh, is on the Supreme Court. Uh, and you know uh, what what this shows is that the Democrats have politicized this issue. I mean, so what we're supposed to have is a fair and impartial judge who does not prejudge cases, but waits for cases to percolate up to the Supreme Court, and then considers the arguments of counsel. Uh, but here, the the Democrats have said that somehow Brett Kavanaugh is going to lead to back alley abortions or is going to cause for a loss of insurance coverage for pre-existing conditions. I mean, whatever political thing they can throw uh, to try to create this boogeyman, uh, they are doing it. And the really terrible thing about that is it really does misportray in a dangerous way the role that a judge plays in
2: our society. So Judge Judy is not on the Supreme Court. Is that what you're saying?
3: Yes, I know. I I know that'll be a disappointment to some, (laughs) (laughs) but she is not on the Supreme Court. The
2: most memorable (laughs) comment of our conversation. Um, Let's talk about the president's constitutional authority and the role of the Senate in advising and consenting or otherwise rejecting a nominee put forward by the executive. Explain that uh, constitutional requirement.
3: Sure. So the president has the right to nominate uh, justices and lower court uh, judges. Uh, It is then up to the Senate to provide advice and consent or to withhold its advice and consent. So in the case of Chief Judge uh, Garland, who was nominated by uh, Barack Obama, uh, the Senate said, you know, we are going to withhold our advice and consent. Other times they have uh, taken up a nomination and have voted down a nominee, Robert Bork. Uh, would be an example of that. But if they provide their advice and they give their consent, which requires a majority of uh, of the voting uh, senators, there is no longer a filibuster uh, available for Supreme Court justices, then the president gets to appoint the judge by essentially signing the judge's commission.
2: So are you optimistic that uh, Judge Kavanaugh will ultimately become the next Supreme Court justice?
3: Yes, I am. I mean, the margins of this hair are very slim, but he is a superb Nominee, as you may know, he was on my list of people whom I thought would make outstanding Supreme Court justices that I published a little over a month after Justice Scalia uh, had passed away. Uh, you're not hearing any noises of any of the Republicans defecting uh, and 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 voting against him. And I predicted if all 50 Republicans stick together and vote for him, that a few red state Democrats will cross over. If by some chance, though, the Democrats were able to persuade. A Republican senator, most likely either Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, and I don't think this will happen, but work to persuade one of them to vote against the nominee. Then the pressure on these red-state Democrats. Uh, would be intense to toe the line. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think that Brett Kavanaugh is a superb nominee. I think he has been through not one, but two confirmation hearings since he was originally nominated in 2003 to the D.C. Circuit and didn't make it on until 2006. He has served with incredible distinction for the past dozen years, and he will be able to handle the confirmation hearings just fine.
2: Well, we'll find out uh, how it all begins September the 4th. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us. Always appreciate it. Great to be with you, Georgie. Bye-bye. Again, John Malcolm <laughs> is vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Did you hear that, James? Judge Judy's not on the U.S. Supreme Court. Who knew? Just, I'm just shocked. Anyway, these are, uh, of course, serious matters, and uh, we'll move forward in the Senate apparently on September 4th, and it does look very much like uh, Justice Kavanaugh will be confirmed. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. There's a debate going on within the African-American church as to whether or not one should take a seat at the table with a leader with whom you disagree largely on a variety of issues. And Christianity Today pointed out that uh, debate that's going on with a headline, Black Pastors Debate Partnering with Trump on Prison Reform. Now, the question is, uh, whether or not it's uh, right for um, not just African-American pastors, but anyone in leadership, but particularly in the church, to sit at the uh, table with someone um, uh, th- that holds the seat of power with whom you may disagree. Well, the uh, John Shepherd writes for Christianity Today that at the beginning of August, Donald Trump convened a gathering of pastors at the White House. Many of the president's loudest supporters have been uh, Christian leaders. Uh, they were not the predominantly white male group that make up the uh, Informal Faith Advisory Council instead at the table for this meeting was a group of African-American pastors invited to discuss criminal justice reform at the president's right hand side was South Carolina pastor John Gray, who opened the meeting with a prayer. And this is what he prayed. God, we thank you for an opportunity to speak about the hearts of those who sometimes cannot fight for themselves. The Relentless Church pastor prayed, Uh, we thank you for this moment to be able to share our hearts with the president. Dr. King said, we cannot influence a table that we are not seated at. I probably would have done that a little bit. So we pray that this conversation will be fruitful and productive and honoring of the best traditions of this nation, end quote. Now, some found that prayer offensive. It's not an endorsement. It doesn't suggest that the president... Uh, it should be agreed with. It's not a, a, an embracing of uh, of everything that's come out of the White House. But that was the prayer that he prayed. It wasn't a statement made to the president. This is an appeal to God himself. Well, conservative media quickly praised um, the the uh, prayer and the meeting. Um, Fox 10 Phoenix, for example, described footage of the moment as powerful prayer. But a few of his uh, community responded um, as well, uh, positively from his community. Days after the meeting, though, a black minister coalition issued an open letter, expressing heartbreak about Gray and the other pastors' dialogue with the with an amoral leader. We need not remind you of the posture of the Prince of Peace, our Savior from the streets, when he stood before Herod and Pilate. Stated the letter, signed by more than fifty pastors, he didn't even pray for them. Well, Gray is a trusted voice in some evangelical circles. He's host of a popular television program on the OWN network. Um, and he was uh, he was accused of being used as a prop. That's how Don Lemon on CNN described it. Gray responded to the charge the same way he has uh, now done dozens of times. Sitting at the table is neither affirming, endorsing, agreeing, or aligning, he said. He also pointed out that a criminal justice reform bill, ostensibly the reason for the White House pastors' meeting, may yet make it through Congress due to their combined efforts. But his trip to the White House and its subsequent fallout have revealed that faith leaders, especially those of color, may find little support in their communities for Public meetings with the president, no matter the pragmatic arguments justifying them, uh, essentially making a, a moral equivalence to sitting at the table with someone with whom you uh, may disagree, is uh, tantamount to endorsement of of embracing all that that individual has done. And then I read another article, Bob Cementana, uh, writing for Facts and Trends, points out that America has become increasingly divided by politics in recent years. And so have its Protestant churches. More than half, 57% of Protestant churchgoers under the age of 50, say they prefer to go to a church with people who share their political views. And few adult Protestant churchgoers say they attend services with people of a different political persuasion. Those are among the findings of a new report on churchgoing and politics from Nashville-based LifeWay Research. Like many places in America, churches are divided by politics. Executive Director of Lifeway Research Scott McConnell points out, and churchgoers under 50 seem to want it that way. For the study, Lifeway Research surveyed uh, 1,010 Americans, a relatively small sampling uh, for sure, but they attended services at uh, least once a month at a Protestant or non-denominational church. 46% agree with the statement, I prefer to attend a church where people share my political views. 42% disagree. 12% are not sure. More than half at 57% of churchgoers, 18 to 49, agree. Fewer churchgoers, age 50 to 64, at 39%, or um, or older, 33%, men are more likely to agree than women. Methodists, non-denominational, Baptist churchgoers are more likely to agree than churchgoers from other denominations, Uh, with the exception of Lutherans. Only a third of churchgoers in the study had a strong feeling on the subject. 12% strongly agree, while 22% strongly agree on the subject of one's political preferences. Politics doesn't seem to be a high priority for most Protestants when choosing a church to attend, he said, but for a small group of churchgoers, it's really crucial. Lifeway Research also asked Protestant churchgoers if their political views match those of people in their church, half agreed, 19% disagreed, 30% weren't even sure, Churchgoers ages 35 to 49 are more likely to agree than those ages 50 to 64, and those uh, older men are more likely to agree than women. Well, American churchgoers who hold evangelical beliefs, about 57 percent, are more likely to agree their political views match others in their church compared to those who don't hold evangelical views. Well, I I bring it up because um, I wanted to highlight a rift that exists in the church, and at the uh, the thing that is cleaving um, uh, uh, us is the the notion of politics one 's political persuasion. Are you left on the uh, political continuum? Are you right on the political continuum, and how dangerous it is, even though dangerous rather it is, even though uh, we all hold views we may feel very strongly about them in the body of Christ, if we cannot somehow come together in unity around the things that we do agree upon, and that uh, among them, the fact that this life and this place and this time is temporary, that we are ultimately servants of the living God. We are, in fact, his ambassadors. And while uh, the political uh, machinations of men in our country is important, men and women, uh, is important, that we ought to be involved, we ought to be informed, we ought to be engaged, it cannot be used as a pretext to divide us. There is nothing the enemy would like more than to undermine the unity that Jesus prayed for uh, in uh, in the uh, Gospel of John. We, we must uh, be able to set aside for the sake of the unity of the faith, for the sake of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to be able to somehow demonstrate that it's possible for people of differing point of views uh, to be civil to one another, to love one another, to live in community, uh, to serve together. And my prayer is that while um, men and women of faith, some in leadership, some just rank and file Christians like most of us are wrestling with this notion of how to live in community with people who are different than ourselves. It goes beyond just the superficial difference of perhaps our skin tone. Uh, It goes to the heart of what we think and what we uh, believe about our culture and politics. And if we as men and women of faith cannot somehow learn to demonstrate uh, living together and loving one another in the church, then there's very little hope, from my perspective, that we can have much influence on the culture. So while I think it's wise for black pastors to debate partnering with the uh, the president and under what circumstances that that's acceptable and so on, uh, and while I, I I think it's important that uh, we as churchgoers do have a an opinion and a perspective on what's going on politically. It's also important to put it into a broader perspective in which we recognize that we are citizens, yes, of the state of Oregon, the state of Washington, of the United States of America, but our true citizenship at home is uh, in heaven and our true sovereign, the one we serve above all others is Jesus Christ. And he has called upon us to do something extraordinary and not just asking us to muster up our own strength, but he has provided for us his Holy spirit going so far as to say, it's better that I go in order that the Holy spirit uh, would come for our sake so that we can somehow demonstrate something that is in life in the 21st century, utterly impossible. And he's asking us to demonstrate by loving one another, what is impossible. And I hope we'll pray about it. I hope we'll ask God to, to grant us the strength and the capacity to love one another, uh, to put our views on a variety of issues in their proper place, and that we would um, do what, he, uh, what he's asked us to do. So a little bit troubled in spirit, but uh, I'm committed to doing that as much as is possible. Hey, I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program. Glad to have you back, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.